Indiana and all the good fun over there. And even though she's got some cousins with, with disgusting breath, <laughs> so, we're okay with that. <laughs> all right. And uh, take your Bibles then. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus 20 in a little bit here, uh, a little bit down into the uh, outline, uh, not the outline, but the notes I have. So Exodus 20, mm, I shouldn't have put a mint in my mouth now. That was silly. Um, I was just thinking about that disgusting ex- breath. So uh, uh, in Exodus 20, we're going to be there a little bit later. And um, last time we were together last week, we saw that our Baptist uh, forebearers were, we were introduced to the Paulicians and uh, the, their um, heritage also runs back to the apostolic era, their testimony of their heritage running back there. We saw that they were doctrinally very along the same lines, very similar to the Montanists and the Novations who were earlier in our study, remember, and the uh, Donatists. So they're all connected. They're all Anabaptists and they all have these, these, uh, this group of doctrines that, I, that d- distinguish them from the Roman Catholics and the Universalists and the, the Orthodox and so forth. And so we have them. We've been following them on down. We did a little uh, more extensively in the Paulicians this last time. Uh, the, the Catholic Church has, um, has had a long-standing uh, uh, relationship with uh, icons and images, haven't they? And certainly something continues to the present day, the worship of images and statuary and icons and the, and the veneration of these things. Uh, it goes all the way back to 325, not too, uh, not too much uh, after the time of Constantine, who, as we remember from our church history, from our study, was the Roman emperor who uh, decided that Christianity was the, going to be the state religion and so forth like that. And so the seeds of the Roman Catholic Church were planted there and on. We saw it really developing the next a few hundred years uh, after that. But uh, Constantine's mom went to um, Jerusalem and she uh, was uh, taken through the sites and so forth there uh, in 325 A.D. And she uh, picked up things that, along the way, and one of the things that she brought back was a bunch of pieces of wood that she was told were part of the cross of Christ. So, uh, this is several hundred years after the event, of course, but she was told that, and she was given nails that were supposedly the nails that were driven into the hands and feet of Jesus. And so uh, the veneration really began at that point uh, with uh, the Roman church there and the uh, development of the worship of images. So that's something that's going on. Uh, all this time that's going on, of course, the one of the characteristics of these Anabaptists, these Donatists and these Novationists and these uh, Paterines and these Catharai and uh, other of these groups um, that we're identifying as part of our heritage, they were all preaching against the idea of the veneration of objects and images and things and they they were uh, you know they stood opposed to it and of course this did not stand them in good stead with the established church with the roman church they were certainly looked upon as heretics because they preached against anyone you know venerating bowing to worshiping praying to these images and icons that were developing in within romanism so um, they had good reason for it they the difference in the followers of uh, the priesthood and the Roman Catholic uh, system 
the difference between them and these Anabaptists, the major difference was the Anabaptists were always, you know, uh, in love with the Bible, with the Word of God. And, uh, and those in the established churches were just taking the word of the priests and the hierarchy, the bishops, the archbishops, and on you go. And they weren't depending on, um, the, you know, knowing much about the Bible themselves. In fact, they were discouraged very uh, seriously from even reading the Bible. So that's something that's not new to Romanism. It's something that's been deep in the history of the Romanist. The idea of the hierarchy being the only ones that can really properly interpret and understand the mysteries of God and, and give them to the people. So you, you can go today and you can, you know, this Sunday or in the first Mass, you can go over to any of these churches that are in our area here that are Romanist and you can sit and you can count and see how many Bibles are taken into the services and you won't find, uh, if any, you'll find very few, if any, uh, because that's not something that they're going to encourage. Uh, now, they have, you know, in more recent years, they've lightened up on that, and they've seen the backlash from, uh, from their stance on that, and so they have, you know, put a face on it and, and said some things about uh, people reading their Bibles, but it's certainly not, they're certainly not in the same category historically as you go back through the, uh, through the centuries. They're not in the same category as just the common guy in the pew uh, or in the in the case of the you know Anabaptists sometimes it was meeting in the field it was meeting wherever they could meet it was meeting in secret it was meeting in a barn it was wherever and so they were not they were not the ones with the big fancy buildings and so forth and all the comforts of uh, we, that we have today that that wasn't them uh, they were meeting anywhere they could meet but the difference was everybody in that congregation loved the Bible and as many of them as could had copies of it and the ones that couldn't memorize huge portions of the scripture. They memorized, you know, not just a few verses, but chapters and chapters and chapters and books of the Bible uh, memorized because they couldn't all have a Bible, you know. And now we can have 40 if we want in our, in our time, and we, we have a hard time, you know, memorizing a verse a month. So, so it's quite a, different, uh, uh, quite a different thing that we, that we live where we do and, and what, uh, you know, what we have. So, yes, there are some... There are some benefits, some great benefits spiritually to persecution. And you can see, you know, with this, uh, with the turning, with the way the tide is turning in America and the con uh, continuing growth of uh, atheists and agnostics and the nuns, which is up to about 20% uh, of the population now. And, and then there's more than that that are in the category of getting ready to, you know, just uh, join that, that group. So, so you have... An increasing number of those that just have don't don't want to have don't want to give the time of day to the Bible, and and as that increases, of course, the things that uh, we have taken for granted for years, we're we're not going to be able to take for granted too much longer because we're starting to get these kinds of oppositions. Things that we preached as just normal truth, like the family, like a man being a man, a woman being a woman like a husband and wife, like a family relationship, like a father's authority, like leadership in the home, and all those things that are biblical principles, none of those are very popular today, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, I see this today, Chick-fil-A folded, the, the uh, sodomite uh, um, group that uh, has been demanding that Chick-fil-A, you know, um, apologize for being for the family. Chick-fil-A finally pulled its support from a couple of, the Salvation Army and one other uh, Christian group because it, just because it was a Christian group. So they stopped donating to those groups because the LGBTQ crowd is, uh, is uh, mad at them, you know. So uh, they folded, they caved on that. It's a sad thing that uh, they did. 
but those kinds of pressures are, are you know, going to be increasingly noticed in our culture because of the fact that we as a culture are departing. So it's going to, yeah, there's going to be some things that, you know, we were, we took for granted before that we're going to be challenged on now. There's a new, uh, there's a new bill going through the Senate. It's already passed in the House. It's in the Senate now, and it is the, called the Equality Act. And it is demanding that, uh, you know, we, we have no, we say nothing negative about uh, uh, gender dysphoria or um, identity, gender identity. If per, a man wants to identify as a woman, go into a woman's locker room, woman's restroom, and so forth, uh, that's supposed to be a constitutionally protected right now. That's, the, that's what the Equality Act is in the process of doing. And um, many of the biblical principles that we preach just day in and day out are going to be considered illegal um, if this passes. So, uh, so we, will, um, we will be breaking the law just to teach and preach the Bible. We'll be lawbreakers. So that's coming. If it passes, we, we will, of course, break the law. We will teach the Bible, and uh, we will be uh, subject to whatever punishments that the uh, bill demands that are paid by churches and pastors and, and Christian people. So certainly the, you know, the idea of us not having any, face any kind of persecution, that's, uh, you know, taking that for granted is something we can't do anymore. <laughs> we just can't take it for granted anymore. It's coming, and it's coming to a theater near you. you know? It's coming to a church near you, and uh, probably soon, you know. So, uh, I mean, we can write. I encourage you to write. I wrote the senators uh, that we have, our our two beloved uh, leftist liberal socialist senators, senators, and I expressed my concern for this and asked them to vote against it, but I saw that both of them were co-sponsors of it, so um, so I doubt they'll vote against their own bill, but I'm telling them why. So you should too, and you know, God can, God can reverse it, but uh, one of the great things about persecution is that it, you know, separates the men from the boys. It separates the men from the boys spiritually. It takes uh, and gives those that are genuine in their commitment to Christ something they got to stand for, you know, with a cost. And those that are just, you know, snowflakes are going to melt in the, in the heat. So um, it does that. It does that. But the other thing that it does, it, it produces a closeness to Christ that uh, nothing else really can, you know, in the, in the same way. When you're under the fires of persecution, um, you, you know, there's nobody else to lean on but the Lord Jesus Christ in those kind of times. So that happens. You, you know, experience that when you have a, you know, when you hear the news of cancer or you hear the news of, uh, you know, the death of a, a loved one you're very close to, you experience that sense of there isn't anybody else to go to but the Lord, you know. So, so that's what's happening with this crowd here, and that's why, you know, these, these persecuted, what, what the Romanists call heretics, are so powerful and why they can't stop them and why they just continue to flourish and grow even though they're, you know, cut off with a knife and, and, and uh, punished by all manner of torture and, and uh, persecutions of every imaginable sort are theirs. But uh, they still are preaching against these things. They'd just be quiet and they'd keep their religion within their four walls that, you know, everything could go good for them. <laughs> but they, they know what the Bible says about it. And so they're out there. The, the Paulicians were ones that had a great deal of impact uh, in, their, in, the, in that um, 
middle part of our study where you, you were up in about into the 700s, 800s, 900s now uh, in our history. And um, the Paulicians are, are taking that stand against the, um, as they always had, against the icons, against the worship of images. And it is um, remarkable that in that same era, the, what became the Greek Orthodox Church was the, uh, the patriarch at Constantinople, that was sort of the eastern division of the Roman Catholic Church, and the western division was at Rome, you know, and they still were meeting together. They still did their ecumenical councils together, and they still made their decisions together, and they still believed many of the same doctrinal things about the universal church and all that stuff. Uh, but the Paulicians had, because they come up out of Armenia uh, and had a great presence in, the, in that area in the east, they had a tremendous impact in the east, and even some of the leadership in the, um, the Catholic Church in the East, the, uh, the, the one at Constantinople, they called him a patriarch the, rather than the Pope. It means the same thing, you know, patriarch, Pope, uh, Papa, the, the big daddy uh, in both ways. But, um, but the, the, the patriarch, one of the patriarchs there in that era of these Paulicians preaching this, decided that, the, he, that they were right on that. And so he issued an edict uh, saying, you know, we're not going to worship these idols and these paintings and these images anymore. We're going to take them out of the churches and we're not going to do that anymore. And so, but that caused a great uproar in the Roman Catholic Church because they, you know, they venerated these things. And especially in the church in the West, they just re- disregarded it altogether. And so this edict passed. This edict was, uh, you know, spread but uh, it didn't. It certainly didn't have the effect. If you read in history, it's called the iconoclast, the iconoclastic movement. Iconoclast means against the icons, you know, and opposing the icons. So you have that uh, in history, in secular history, you read about the iconoclasts, and they were the eastern branch of the Roman Catholic Church under the patriarchs in the 800s and 900s and that, that, uh, you know, uh, were, were, were influenced by the Paulicians. Even though they persecuted the Paulicians, they, uh, they were influenced by these Anabaptists and they're preaching against that thing. So, uh, in fact, it was um, uh, a little past my time. There was 726, uh, 726, the 8th century, that the Eastern Emperor, uh, whose name was Leo III, issued this edict against the worship of images and so um, let's look at Exodus 20, verse 4 through 6, and see you know, wh- why, the, uh, why the Baptists had a, had a real issue with that. And Exodus 20, verse 4 through 6. And like I said, the, the Romanists, the eastern branch or the western branch, either one didn't know what the Bible said about anything. They were just uh, following the rituals and the traditions of the elders and so on like that. So they weren't um, students of the word like the Anabaptists were. But um, Exodus 20, verse 4 through verse 6. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto the thousand of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now the Anabaptists got this. They knew it. And they knew that uh, over there in the book of uh, John, the third letter of John or second letter uh, of 
John, maybe the first letter of John, at the end of the, one of John's letters, uh, he says, uh, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And they got that. They understood the Bible. They knew the word. They remember when Israel went after the brazen serpent that was made and they turned it into an idol because it was something they venerated. They said, oh, this thing, you know, look to it and we healed and, you know, uh, and it was God that healed them. It wasn't the piece of brass up there. And they were worshiping that thing. It was Gideon that, uh, you know, uh, that set up that image to the, that brazen image. And Gideon had them worshiping the brazen image too. And, uh, uh, and they, they did that for, you know, a couple hundred years until one of the kings came along. Who was, I forget which one it was even. Who was it? Hezekiah it was in his reforms. He just said, hey, you, you guys, you knuckleheads, you know, you're, we're, ha- we're having God's, uh, you know, uh, punishment, God's, uh, chastening on us because we have venerated this object. And he said, it's Nehushtan, Nehushtan. It's a piece of brass, you know. Uh, and so they, you know, they tore it down, he melted it out, got rid of it. And the Anabaptists knew all these accounts in the Bible. They knew them because they knew their Bibles. And they knew that the image worship, the objects and the, these things that were venerated was sin against God. So, they preached against it. And you have that, uh, that great contrast seen there in history. The neat thing about our Anabaptist heritage, though it was destroyed and they burned all their books and they you know, persecuted them and killed them as much as they could and stamped them out wherever they could and drove them into the mountains wherever they could. Uh, and so they couldn't keep their writing. They couldn't keep their you know, records or anything like that. There's, all that's burned and destroyed. But what the enemies wrote about them really tells us a lot about them. <laughs> so, uh, so what the enemies said were, were, you know, these things that were in the mind of the Romanists were terrible crimes against God, which were actually uh, not crimes at all against God. They were just, uh, they were just disagreements with the Roman Catholic Church. So, so we, have, we have a good idea of where they were. So in the 8th and the ninth nice centuries, we've got this... Uh, Continuing power and corruption going on in Roman Catholic Church, the ninth uh, century, the <laughs> it's almost funny humorous. In the ninth century, the Pope in the West decided, because of some conflicts with the patriarch in Constantinople, that he'd had enough of it and he was going to excommunicate him. So he did. He excommunicated the patriarch of Constantinople. So the Constantinople patriarch writes an excommunication decree and de- excommunicates the Pope of the West. And so they excommunicated each other. And uh, so it was, it was uh, Patriarch Photius and Pope Nicholas I that did that to each other. So they kicked each other out of the church, you know. And, uh, and that was really the official beginning of the Greek Orthodox Church when that occurred because the separation now was more or less complete, although 200 year, more years went by where they were still doing some things together until they finally separated uh, entirely. So, uh, so you've got that uh, you've got that distinction being made, being clearly made, and uh, and then let's go on and, and take a look at the next couple of hundred years, 850 to 1050. You have from Pope Nicholas to Pope Gregory the Seventh. Now, Pope Gregory the Seventh was a French guy. Uh, his name was Hildebrand, and they really know him better. He's really remembered more as Hildebrand than he is uh, by his chosen name, Pope name, you know, uh, Gregory the Seventh. Uh, but those 200 years have been called, you know, with the whole era from 500 to 1500 is called the Dark Ages. But this 
period of time from 850 to 1050, the historians have labeled it the midnight of the Dark Ages, the midnight of the Dark Ages, because the Romanists had gotten so corrupt that unbelievable things were taking place. There was a period that the papal palace was literally turned into a brothel, the papal palace. <laughs> and this was done by the sons of Pope Sergius III with his approval and with the help of his mistress, whose name was Marosia. And so for, from 904 to 963, uh, this was going on in the papal palace. This, this brothel was taking place, this harlotry was taking place. As a matter of fact, it was called, that period was called the rule of the harlots. The rule of the harlots. And, you know, the Romanists weren't done with their with their uh, dirty deeds. They weren't done at all. In fact, a, a pope by the name of Benedict the Ninth has the distinction of being called the worst of all popes. The worst of all popes. And you've got to be pretty bad to be the worst of all popes, you know. But he was. He, he was uh, put in the throne through wheeling and dealing at the age of 12 because they had, uh, you know, popes had been excommunicating each other and bishops had been uh, excommunicating the popes and the popes had been excommunicating one another and it was just a mess. And <laughs> at one time there were two popes at the same time that uh, neither one were legitimate and then a third pope comes in and throws those two over and it was just, it's a lot of fun to read the history of it um, and, and that. But uh, this guy was called the worst of all popes and he's, he was described this way he's nothing more than a hideous mobster he was guilty of uh, you know mandating the murders of many many people that were you know uh, opposed to him or working against him and uh, they bought and sold offices in the in the uh, in the church you know positions and places in the church at that point at this time, point in time of course the uh, Roman Catholic Church and the governments of Europe were all intertwined. The king, they were kingmakers, you know, and they had the ability to depose, set up and depose kings. Uh, the Roman Church had that much power at one time. So um, uh, that's, that's going on. Then from the years 1000 to 1300, you've got this reformer, this guy named Hildebrand comes, uh, Gregory II. This is after this 200 darkest of the dark years. And he's thinking, man, we've got to reform this mess because, you know, they're... They're uh, more than going to hell in a handbasket. They're already there and been there and done that, you know, and came back. And it's that, it's that bad in, in the, the, Roman, the Roman hierarchy. So this pope comes in. He's going to establish some re, uh, reforms, and he's going to make the Roman church the supreme authority of the world. So he, he's pretty successful at consolidating power, and he is able to depose uh, kings and, you know, um, and do, do uh, his dirty work. Um, and he does that, but uh, one of the things that consolidates power in the church is that he uh, stops the uh, ability of the kings to nominate uh, persons for positions in the, in the high offices of the church. So before that, the kings had the opportunity to nominate bishops and popes. And so he stopped that after he became pope. He was a monk. Of, uh, he was a dedicated monk to the, you know, to the cause of Romanism. But he wanted to see it uh, reformed. And so he, he did a lot of work in that era. And, and, but he eventually became pope. And when he was uh, established as a pope, then he cut off the right of the kings to make nominations for any church offices. And so that consolidated the power under him 
rather than him having to depend at all to do any favors for kings or anything of that nature. And there were some kings um, that uh, opposed him, but uh, he, all he did was he just closed the churches over in the area where the king of France was, for example, and, and uh, all the people, you know, went berserk. All the dedicated Catholics were saying, well, you know, I can't, we can't, we can't, uh, you know, we're all going to go to hell. We can't do the mass. We can't, we can't have uh, absol- absolution of our sins. And, and so they put so much pressure on the, the king that he had to recant and had to apologize to the Pope and, and do his penance and so forth. One king, they made him, the Pope made him stand outside of the Pope's palace in the snow barefooted for three days before he would uh, allow him to come back into the church. <laughs> so uh, those kind of things were the kind of power that these popes had. So he established the supremacy of the Roman Catholic Church in his reign, this, uh, this uh, Hildebrand or Pope Gregory VII. And, uh, and in doing that, he, he declared the Roman Pope is now the universal bishop. And he declared that the Pope may depose all emperors anywhere in the world and declared that the Pope can be judged by no one. He was the first, the others kind of believe that, but he was the first one to put it into, into uh, you know, writing and to make it an edict that the Pope uh, can be judged by no man. And the, uh, he's, he uh, declared that the Roman church has always been without error and will always be without error. So he declared the church as infallible, the Pope as infallible, and the church as without error. So um, that's, uh, that's the, the work of uh, this Pope Gregory. Now he's viewed as one that really consolidated the power in the Roman Catholic Church, and he did. He did. He brought you know, the Roman Catholic Church to the preeminent position that he really controlled Europe and controlled the, you know, the known world uh, of the time. So there is uh, then the summit point of papal power after Gregory, you know, the thing continues to accelerate, and you have Pope Innocent III. What a, what a sweet name, Pope Innocent III, you know. Um, anything but innocent in 1200. He declares himself the vicar of God and the supreme sovereign over the church and over all the world. <laughs> uh, he's the first one that uh, declared papal a papal infallibility, that whatever the Pope speaks is infallible. He never errs in his speaking. So uh, he's the one, Pope Innocent III, that forbade the reading of the Bible in the languages of the people. He didn't want anybody reading the Bible. Um, he limited it to Latin, and he limited it to the uh, educated of the, of the uh, church for the, uh, for the time. So, of course, your Baptist forebearers, your Anabaptist people are, you know, are not, uh, they're, they're his targets. I mean, he, they got a big target painted on their back f- uh, from um, this, uh, this Pope uh, Innocent III. And so you, he- you hear about these inquisitions in Spain, but there were inquisitions going on in Europe uh, well before the inquisition in Spain that you read about in history. And they were primarily uh, aimed against Baptists in France. And it went on for uh, three years, from 1209 to 1211, 1211, 1209 to 1211, these um, in- inquisitions went on among, against the Baptists. They, the Crusades were going on uh, against the Muslims in um, the Holy Land, pr- primarily, but uh, the Baptists were always included in the enemy uh, there, the Anabaptists. But the Crusades that uh, were instituted by the popes were principally... And, and the Pope's emissaries were principally against the Muslims until this uh, one with Pope Innocent, he 
he focused on the uh, Anabaptists, on, on uh, the crusade against them. And so the, uh, the killing was just unspeakable. I mean, hundreds of thousands of your forebearers and mine were killed by the armies of Pope Innocent III as he moved against them in this crusade, just hundreds of thousands. I'm talking men, women, children, babies, everybody was m murdered and destroyed uh, by, the, uh, by the armies of the Pope in that three-year period of terror, that reign of terror. There were very few survivors, and the ones that survived took refuge in the mountainous valleys where they were driven to. If you look on your map, you're going to see that uh, in the south of France, between France and, and Spain, is the Pyrenees Mountains, and there's a valley runs in through there uh, that's not, a, you know, not the ideal place for farming and so forth like that, but that's where these, these Anabaptists were driven into, the Pyrenees Valley there, and then in the, into the Rhine Valley of north further, or the Rhone Valley, which is there's uh, mountains uh, surrounding it as well. So they're looking for places where there's not a lot of population and there's not a likelihood of great armies being able to get in there and maneuver and get to them and so forth. They're going into the Piedmont Valley uh, in uh, southern France and up into those, in the Piedmont Valley, it's really a valley between two very precipitous mountain ranges. And so uh, that's where these survivors are taking refuge and, um, and still making converts, still preaching the gospel, still winning people to Christ wherever they go. They're winning them to Christ. And so uh, uh, it, it's that kind of thing going on. This pope, in order to facilitate the, um, the work, was uh, trying to get the French people and the partisans and, and the, uh, the followers of the king of France to help him in this extermination work. And some of them were a little reticent about doing that, about just killing men and women and children. But what he did was he offered them, he said, you can have their territories, their land, their farms, their buildings, their property. You can have anything you want of them. If you just go in and, and kill them, you can take over whatever they've got and take whatever they have. So that's the incentive that they had to uh, destroy the, um, the uh, followers of, of Christ who we uh, term our, our Anabaptist forebears, these these Paulicians, uh, these Novationists, these others that identified with uh, leaders that were, were principally concerned about the scriptures rather than the, um, the church, the, the traditions of the church, uh, the Roman church. So a group called the Cathari in southern France. Cathari, remember from last time, it means the purists, or we call them Puritans because they you know, wanted to keep to the pure word of God. So they were called by that name Catharai, which means pure, purists. Uh, the Albigenses were a, another Anabaptist group there. We've been talking about them in southern France. They were named after the town of Albi where there, uh, there was a good uh, collection of them, a clustering of them. There was kind of the center uh, of them as they spread out. But they, they were real uh, evangelists. I mean, they really did the work of evangelism and they uh, were, as a result of that, you know, winning many, many people to, to the Lord. So uh, um, the, one of the psalms that was used by the persecutors to suggest that what they were doing was, was of God was Psalm 94, verse 16. Verse, look at that, Psalm 94, verse 16. This is being used, I'm saying, by the Romanists 
who were persecuting and killing the Anabaptists, the, especially in the era of the Albigenses, the southern France, the terrorist, terrorist persecutions of Innocent the Third from 1209 uh, to 1211. And Psalm 94 and verse uh, 16, Psalm 94, verse 16, this was the quote, as if it were from the Pope. They were saying, this is the Pope. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? So that was the battle cry for the legates, uh, the representatives of the Pope, who were saying, the Pope needs you to stand up for him against these evildoers, these Anabaptists, you know, who, who are opposing him. But the fact is, the whole 94th song really belongs to the Anabaptists, and so read it. It's really the opposite of the ones that claimed it. It belongs to the persecuted Anabaptists. Let's read it. Uh, as, as we think of the Anabaptists, as we think of the Romanist corrupt uh, Pope and his, uh, his henchmen, think of it that way. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth, O Lord, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself, lift up thyself, the judge of the earth, Render a reward to the proud. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long shall they utter and speak hard things? And all the workers of iniquity boast themselves. They break in pieces thy people, O Lord, and afflict thy heritage. They slay the widow, the stranger, and murder the fatherless. Yet they say, the Lord shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. Understand, ye brutish among the people, and ye fools, when will ye be wise? He that planteth the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? He that chastiseth the heathen, shall he not correct? He that teacheth man knowledge, shall he not know? The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him uh, out of thy law that thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit be digged for the wicked. And for the Lord will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. But the judgment shall return unto, the righteous, unto righteousness, and all the upright in heart shall follow it. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers, or who will stand for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul had almost dwelt in silence." When I said, My foot slippeth, thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. In the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts delight my soul. Shall the throne of iniquity have fellowship with thee, which frameth mischief by law? They gather themselves together against the soul of the righteous and contemn the innocent blood. But the Lord is my defense, and my God is the rock of my refuge. And he shall bring upon them their own iniquity, and shall cut off in their own wickedness. Yea, the Lord our God shall cut them off. So that really belongs to the Anabaptists, doesn't it? That truth there. And now it's, uh, you know, those persecutors are getting their just desserts. Uh, they have um, faced God in judgment. And he has, as he said here, he's seen what they've done and why they did it. And they've faced him in judgment. Those that were persecuted are enjoying and have been for the last many hundreds of years the blessings and bliss of heaven as uh, their reward. And so uh, it's a remarkable thing to read the testimonies of these that died that way, uh, that died that way, who never uh, seemed to be dying in 
agonies of pains for themselves, but uh, always seemed, their, their great concern was they did not want to dishonor the name of their Savior in their death, you know, in their, in their uh, tortures and their persecutions. They did not want to deny Christ. And so, and that was really the concern of the living that watched these persecutions and tortures. The concern of the living brethren was, oh, not that they were suffering, not that they were dying, not that they were being tortured, but, oh, I, I pray that they will be able to keep their testimony uh, as they as they're tortured and as they die, you know. So, what a what a powerful difference uh, that uh, we see in these that have faced that kind of thing. So, this kind of um, you know this kind of um, look back is really a good thing for us in in our present comforts to realize that we have nothing to complain about. You know, we have nothing to gripe about. So, uh, let's thank the Lord for uh, His goodness to us, and let, let's say God help us if we do face more difficult times ahead to, to be more faithful to you. And uh, let's get some others along the way. One of the things you'll notice as you study the Albigenses, you study the Cathari, you study the Montanists and the Donatists, and you study the uh, Bogomils and all the others that identified as Anabaptists, one of the things they always were doing was, was getting the testimony of Christ out there. They were evangelists, you know, and they, uh, they really populated the... The, the face of Europe with believers because of their testimony. So thank God for that. Let's go ahead and stop there. We'll uh, have a word of prayer as we wrap it up here tonight. Think of the missionaries that we mentioned there. Uh, uh, as you remember, the Baloo family in Thailand in prayer. And I uh, also would ask you too, if you'd uh, add the Emmanuel Baptist Rescue Mission to your list uh, too as an extra one this week because as they're preparing for Thanksgiving and Christmas season, they have a lot more uh, needs that uh, they try to meet. And so if you could uh, pray for the Emmanuel Baptist Rescue Mission as well as the others that we uh, mentioned earlier in, in uh, Brother Les Hill in Ireland and and um, if you'd uh, remember him and the Baloos in Thailand and um, Emmanuel Baptist Rescue Mission too. But uh, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer and uh, we'll wrap it up tonight. If you're able to uh, get on your knees, you can. If you want to remain seated, that's fine too. Uh, Ryan, if you pray first uh, as we go to prayer. And then, uh, Brother Andrade, would you close in prayer after Ryan prays?